0: the cinema limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the uk's leading independent entertainment podcasting network for episode archives of cinema limbo and all of the shows on the network visit us at www.podnose.com you can also follow us on twitter via @podnos podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. or the work of a damaged mind, but looking deeper may reveal a truth we had not suspected. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and meta-chicken, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's presentation is Even Dwarf Started Small, the 1970 absurdist comedy written and directed by legendary filmmaker Werner Herzog. My guest is the distinctly normal Chris Arnsby, and you join us in his entirely proportional living room. Hello, Chris. Hello. Now... What can you tell me about Johnny English?
1: Uh, he's played by Rowan Atkinson. Um, it was based on a series of Barclay card commercials that ran for years. I'm struggling. <laughs> um,
0: I, I was I re-watched the two films recently mm. and uh, I was struck by the difference in approach that the two of them had. The first is very much a comedy about spies, but the second is much more of a, a proper spy movie that has a lot of comedy in it. OK. And I thought that was a very interesting and unusual dichotomy there, because it really does feel like two totally different projects, almost like they're reflecting different aspects of James Bond different eras.
1: Potentially, yes. Did you know they're making a third film? I can't say I did, but I'm not surprised. Wasn't it massively successful as well? Wasn't it one of these films that was massively successful
0: in the Far East or something? Well, Mr. Bean is huge in the Far East, and I think the first film was promoted with the title Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean is a a spy now. Um, Yeah, they both did about 160 million worldwide from budgets of under 50 million, so they've both done extremely well. Mm. Um, The second film bombed in the US. Did less than ten million overall. I can't say I've seen either of them. They're interesting. Um, the first one has a lot of great Rowan Atkinson clowning. Mm. Um, there's the inevitable scene where uh, they're trying to prove the villain's evil plan by playing a DVD of his presentation to the other henchmen. What? But the DVD has been mixed up with a video of English. In his bathroom, miming to "Does Your Mother Know?" by Abba. Okay. And while everyone is staring at this in shock and dismay, English is actually mouthing along to the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, the, the, and the second one has a really amazing cast: Gillian Anderson oh, okay. as as the M equivalent, um, Daniel Kaluuya, Academy Award nominee now, mm. Dominic West, Tim McInerney as Q effectively, Rosamund Pike a former Bond girl. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the third one has uh, Olga Korolenko from um, Quantum of Solace. I, that, which reminds the one James Bond
1: film I haven't seen. So,
0: Oh, it's worth seeing. I mean, it's terrible, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's worth seeing for context. And uh, it's, the new one is also directed by David Carr, who's the um, director behind Inside Number Nine. Oh, okay. So you told me earlier that you hadn't actually seen any Werner Herzog films before.
1: Yes, this is true. I'm trying. I'm struggling to remember. I've seen bits of them. I've seen bits of Fitzcarraldo, and I've seen bits of, and all pronunciations are wildly variable. Aguirre. I'll, Agui- I'll
0: enjoy correcting you yeah. as we go.
1: Aguirre, Wrath of God. Aguirre. Aguirre, a Wrath of God. I've seen bits of it. Uh, I've certainly seen the documentary he made about his work with Klaus Kinski, My Best Fiend. Kinski. Kinski. Um, and I've seen his assorted documentaries. Although I think I skipped the one about people on death row because that seemed grim, even by Werner Herzog
0: standards. <laughs> well, I didn't feel it was too grim and downbeat. I thought I thought it was very interesting. I always think it's a shame that he's never made a film in the UK mm. because I'd love to get his to, to see his perception of of my environment. Yeah, because he's such he's such a singular voice. There really isn't anyone in the world like him. No, no, I don't think there is. He has quite an unusual background. Um, he was born um, halfway through the war in Munich, uh, was effectively evacuated along with his uh, his mother to a town called Sachan in, um, in the mountains, only a, a few miles from the border with Austria. And he grew up effectively in the mountains, mm. He claims not to have seen a film until he was well into his teenage years and not to have made a phone call until he was 17. So he lived in this sort of odd, hermetic existence. But once he had seen films for the first time, he felt some inner urge, some inner calling, that this was to be what he would be devoting his life towards. So he made a few films during the 60s, some short films. His first film is called Hercules, which was an avant garde documentary about bodybuilders. In another film called Game in the Sand, which he has said uh, got out of control while he was making it and has since <laughs> never released. Apparently, it's to do with some children and a rooster. And I strongly suspect it involves the rooster not surviving. The yeah, film. That,
1: that seems possible.
0: Apparently, there's a scene where it's buried up to his head in sand.
1: Yeah, it's, things are looking bad for the
0: rooster. Yeah. But he was able to get together the money for his first feature film, Science of Life, by working a night job as a welder. And he saved up all his cash, stole a camera from a film school. Okay. Because that's the kind of thing yeah. he does. Uh, shot the movie, and it won a prize at the Berlin Film Festival, and <laughs> which came attached with a quarter of a million Deutschmarks to spend on his next project. Uh, wow. With, and with... Typical Bavarian um, zeal, he managed to stretch that money out to to make three films. Hmm. One of which was Even Dwarves Started Small. The other two were Fata Morgana, which was an impressionistic documentary about um, the landscape of North Africa. And a more straightforward documentary called The Flying Doctors of East Africa, um, during the production of all of which he was arrested... He was thrown in jail because the director of photography happened to have a very similar name to a known gun runner. Oh. And while he was in jail, he contracted a blood infection, which almost killed him. Right. And these things seem to just follow him around. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much business as usual for him, I think, yeah. is But uh, Even Dwarves was shot in the last few months of 1969 on Lanzarote. Oh OK. That, yeah, that makes sense and he drafted in every dwarf he could find in Germany to be in the movie. He describes in the director's commentary on the DVD that casting the dwarves was tricky, but once you find one, they tend to know each other. Yeah, that makes sense. So he could just get references from friends, and gradually he was able to get together enough to form the cast. Mm. Um, The movie screened at Cannes in the summer of 1970 and was released in Germany later that year, and he claims to have consistently had death threats every night for a long time about the movie, particularly from white supremacists. Okay. I mean, white supremacists aren't the brightest stars in the sky on the best of occasion. But... um, What what is it they were objecting to? Well... Who could say? <laughs> I mean, um, there's there's stuff to take issue with in this book. There's there's a, there's a lot to unpack about what's mm. going on. There is also the issue that Herzog loves to self mythologize. Yes, he's yeah. he's the unreliable narrator of his own life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, listen, if you want to read some stories about Herzog, then it's very easy to just turn up all sorts of insane stories. His his collaborations with Klaus Kinski. Mm. The frequent murder plots, um, that time he was shot during an interview with Mark Kermode, a story that apparently becomes more and more self aggrandizing every time he retells it. Yeah. That Kermode becomes increasingly cowardly and craven while Herzog is heroically standing up against this passing gunman who shot him with an air rifle. <laughs> and he takes apparently enormous glee in retelling this story. Oh, tale. I, can, I can imagine.
1: I certainly the first time I came across him, there was a magazine in the a film magazine in the nineties called Neon, and they were obsessed in a very good way with Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski, and they did two or three different articles about the filming of Fitzcarraldo, and just about the relationship between the two. And be, because I was quite lazy, I was fascinated by the relationship between the two and the descriptions of the films, but not enough to kind of ever actually go out of my way. And try watching some.
0: The films he made with Kinski are fascinating. Mm. Um, uh, Their first collaboration, A Gary Wrath of God, and then later Fitzcarraldo, but they also made three other films together. Mm. Um, But even Dwarves is is the thing that really put him on the map in terms of here is someone doing something no one else is doing. Yes, that's certainly true. (laughs) So you only saw the movie yesterday? Yesterday um i of course i've seen this several times well, well, um what did you think in as few words as possible <laughs> i
1: i think the thing that i found it definitely tells an ordered story i'm just not necessarily sure what that ordered story is um it's disturbing in places um I'm kind of struggling. i I don't think I've ever felt so out of depth with the film for a long time. Because I, I, I kind of I think what what intrigued me most about it was you watch it and obviously it just it just starts and it sets up its own little world and it's and and it seems like a collection of scenes. But at the same time I thought it was gonna be a struggle to watch and it wasn't. Um and God help me, I got engaged with whatever the hell it was that was going on. I wanted to see what was going to happen. You know, I didn't stop watching the film and start absentmindedly tidying up or cutting my nails right. No, I, I watched it. I'm just not sure what I watched. And I think that's the thing maybe that, that marks him out as a director of talent, is that if I... you You think of spoof pseudo-intellectual art films like the it's the one in monty python isn't it where it's terry jones and um he's on a rubbish heap and there's um seagulls swooping around in the background and it's all french subtitles and that's very much a, just a kind of disjointed collection of scenes and that's the point because that's the kind of film it's spoofing and somebody that wasn't a talented director. A film like that would just fall apart into moments. It would be, here's a scene where they're driving round and round in a car, or here's a scene where they're crucifying a monkey, for example. Mm. Um, that doesn't happen here. It, it, it It's more than just a collection of scenes. It somehow manages to tell some kind of story that actually has momentum and becomes engaging and watchable. I don't know why, and I don't really understand it, but, you know, you you can actually... The strange thing is that you you watch it, and you think this should be... And you can see why it got him some attention, because there's something about it that works, and there is something about it that grabs your attention. I have no idea what it is.
0: Herzog himself describes it as being a nightmare, that it's imagining a a revolution. Yeah. But in, in nightmarish terms. That's... I did there was
1: definitely a point about halfway through when I went, Okay, this must be some kind of metaphor, and that the scenes of the guy that's the instructor standing on the roof shouting at the crowds suddenly struck this vague mental image of image you things you see from films where it's like the dictator of the South American country kind of haranguing the crowd from a balcony or something, yes, and I began. In desperation to cr- to craft this metaphor, where the whole film is like, it's like the fall of a South African republic or something. It's sort of South South American republic. You know, it's the revolution. Yeah. And it's the that's
0: that's, that's pretty much exactly what Herzog uh, oh, cool. intended. So, <laughs> yeah, see, it's intimidating because it's like it's all in black and white. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's all dwarves. And it's and, in German. And it's in German. And there's chickens. And there's cars driving in circles. Actually, there is like a coherent thought There's a it. thing going on, and, that's, and as I
1: say, I think if a more self-indulgent or a less talented director wouldn't have been able to get that across. But yeah, I watched it, and apparently I picked up... Well, I might have to go back and get a photo with the director's commentary now just so that I could hear what he
0: thinks about it. Well, I, I did actually offer to... Because you had mm. some trouble getting hold of a copy, yes. I did offer to bring over mine, which has... It's not only the director, but it's not only Herzog... Um, uh, talking to um, someone from Anchor Bay. But sitting in on the commentary, for no apparent reason, it's Crispin Glover. <laughs> OK. Who chips in with the occasional question and, and point and is surprisingly uh, coherent mm. and lucid because he's not known for being either <laughs> of those things.
1: But I think Crispin Glover's gone on to become a, va- a director of note in yes. those kind of... He, Bernhard- he, he,
0: he cites Herzog as an influence on his own very strange avant-garde filmmaking um, with in particularly being right. an inspiration it's also apparently Harmony Corrine's favourite film who uh, went on to direct Gummo, Spring Breakers again sort of weird avant-garde mm. kind of productions how would you describe reluctantly <laughs> no go <on. laughs> how would you describe in loose terms the, uh, the story of the film ok somewhere
1: in the bleak volcanic wastes of what I assume is downtown Munich (laughs) there is an institution and the way it's set up although I think I don't think the way it's set up is actually what's kind of revealed at the end of the film but the way it's set up to the audience at the start is that the what do they call They're, they're all referred to in vaguely academic terms, like not the head teacher, but is it principal or something? It's principal. It's principal, isn't it? The principal and some of the instruct. No, it doesn't. It starts with a police investigation, doesn't it? Because it starts with the sequence of. Is this guy's name Ombre or something?
0: Yeah, he's, uh, he's referred to throughout as Ombre.
1: He's holding a. A numbered thing, and there's somebody barking orders at him, like turn to the left, look to the left, look at the camera, and they're taking pictures. And you realise that it's almost the process of having a police mugshot taken. And then somebody starts to ask him questions, and he says, "Is it like I don't want to sort of?" But anyway, the interrogator says, "We just want to find out what happened." And then it cuts back to the institution, and the inmates just seem to have kind of got out of control. It's as if everybody has. Running the place has gone away for the day. There is one instructor left, and the inmates have turned on him and he's now penned up in the building with a guy called Pepe, I think who's tied to a chair and the inmates are running riot that's the start.
0: Yes. well, much of the film is devoted to following the inmates as yeah, there, yeah. They're, they're capering around, enjoying their newfound freedom. In the film, as Fritz said, it's intended as an allegory for revolution. Hmm. Well, that's not an allegory, but an analogy. Yeah, yeah. That they've they've thrown off their oppressors, whoever they might be, and and they're enjoying their freedom. But it gradually turns into complete
1: undisciplined chaos. And also, I mean, it also sort of ramps up. One of the inmates has got a weird religious thing because insi- there's one of them that insists that they pray before a meal and then at the end when they're talking about the camel she goes on about what a pious creature it is because it keeps falling to its knees or something yes so there's one one inmate has got a weird religious thing and of course i believe i've mentioned the monkey crucifixion um it's not as bad as it sounds by no, the, way. the
0: the monkey is tied to the cross and Herzog says that it was actually very soft wool and was only up there for two minutes at most uh it does look very distressed, It's however.
1: a strike, it's a startling image when you see it as well. Because initially it does look like a regular crucifix. And it's not till you go, hang on, that thing's moving. Um, anyway, so there's a weird religious element to it. There's somebody else that just wants to steal cars and stuff, isn't there? Yeah. They're obsessed with tormenting the people that they consider to be lesser than themselves because there's two blind inmates as yes. well so you can kind of vaguely you can see the way that within a revolution all these deeply held sort of repressed grudges and things might suddenly break out with the grip of a strong rule suddenly taken away people will just go off and do their own thing yeah
0: there is something that we haven't specifically mentioned yet which we ought to raise yes I'm, you haven't mentioned yet it's because every i'm single, panicking over
1: the correct term to use
0: i checked this to okay side. every single character in this film is a dwarf
1: we are and i know i'm now going to sound like some of the worst kind of liberal guardian reader dwarf is
0: okay i checked
1: this but fine
0: in, in that word, case like midget re- is not acceptable right. but dwarf is a medical term right dwarfism yeah. for example
1: I can relax then. Yes,
0: the, everybody is also a dwarf. Yes. It's not just a, an institution for dwarfs no. because the principal is a dwarf as well. Well, but again, this, this is one of these things that,
1: that, that doesn't become clear at first quite what the grudges they've got against this guy that they've got in the bungalow. Um, but yes, it gradually becomes clear that he's one of the instructors. And then in a sequence later on in the film, I'm not even sure if it's implied that everybody in the world is dwarfs, Because the, there's a sequence where a car pulls up, and a woman gets out of the car, and she's also a dwarf, but she's going on somewhere else.
0: Yes, so and that's it, a, a regular car.
1: Yeah, it's a perfect... But that's, I mean, that's obviously part, part of the film, is that these are dwarfs interacting with um, furniture and things... That, that just of standard sizes, and I don't know. I don't know whether that moment is meant to make you question whether there's nothing unusual about that. that, that, that these aren't inmates who are all, who also just happen to be dwarfs. It's just that everybody in this world, everybody in this world
0: is. Well, this is again. This is Hertzog's explanation. The characters aren't dwarves. Not no. But the idea is that they are totally out of step with their environment that that their environment has not been created for them, they're being forced to live Mm. in this environment which is not suited for them and Mm. this extends outside the institute to the the passing motorist living in a world that is not suited for you, that has not been Mm. created for your benefit and support so everything is the wrong size. Everything is out of proportion. Yeah. He, he keeps using the word monstrous. If, like, oh, the doorknob is monstrous. The desk is absolutely monstrous. <laughs> and the way, of course, you illustrate this in the movie is to cast actors who are completely yeah. out of proportion with the environment. With the surroundings. You cast yeah. The fact that they are dwarves is is not actually part of the story, which, which is mm. why everyone is, because so there's no f- point of reference.
1: Yeah. I think at the start of the film, I just made the assumption that what I was being told was literally true—that they all lived in this strange institution—and whether the, the reason that they were there was related to the fact that they were dwarfs or not. But that, but I, it was just this assumption that somewhere, because they talk about the police and you know the police will be going to, and there was just as, an assumption that at some point a bunch of regular-sized police officers will turn up and start bossing everyone around, but that moment never happens. And as I say, when the motor car turned up, the door opened, and the driver, the first thing the driver does is drops a block out, and then they stand on the block, and you realise that the the driver of this car is also, and it's that thing of suddenly having to reappraise your view of the world that the film is set in, Mm. and it is that moment of going, well, okay, everyone's everyone's a dwarf. Yeah which, as much as this film came to blow, that that was kind of the, the moment in the film that I found the most mind-blowing, was this realisation that I'd accepted so much about this world that was weird but had come to make sense. And then there's here's another moment that's still weird and uh, on top of it.
0: A recurring image in the film is chickens. Yes. Herzog is on record as absolutely hating and despising chickens. He fears them. Right. For their absolute infinite stupidity. Okay. <laughs> and I, I understand that they are too stupid to realise that they're doing something right. I can imagine him extending this to human beings. People who are so stupid that they don't realise what they're doing and how dangerous and destructive they can be. Yeah. And he so says you only have to look into the eyes of a chicken to be horrified by the depths of their madness and and... and infinite moronis I forget the word Yes, I mean
1: I can't say I've ever looked directly into the eyes of a chicken Um, he also
0: mentions they're incredibly easy to hypnotise
1: I've certainly heard this in different contexts in the context of somebody trying to get a chicken to perform on a TV show. They basically needed it to stand on a specific spot. And all I remember about the anecdote was, was that then one of the assistant directors said, like, "Oh yeah, you hypnotised the chicken." And you, they pointed at a spot on the floor or something, and the chicken just stood on the spot on the floor.
0: If you draw a chalk line in front of it, that, that might it'll be... stare at the chalk line and it won't move.
1: Yeah, I've never met a chicken. <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> what about a meta chicken?
1: No, that's that would be even worse.
0: But <laughs> is the, chickens come up over and over again. I mean, later in the film. You can see them eating each other.
1: There's a flat one. There's one that's obviously been run over by a car. And one of the other chicken. I think, isn't that one of the first shots of the film, virtually? It's of a chicken pecking at the flattened remains of another.
0: Yeah. I've seen seagulls eating each other. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, it's they, they don't even have that much sense to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And also, early in the film, we, there is a shot of the whole institution with all the buildings labelled. Yes. Um, and that never becomes relevant again. <laughs> no.
1: Well, and uh, that, was the mo- that was the point when I panicked, because that, I think that was, as I was watching this, that was the point when I remembered that, that um, Werner Herzog is German. And there was suddenly a very good chance that this film might not be in English, like I'd assumed, like some kind of monstrous colonial master. Um, I, that was the point when I turned the subtitles on. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Because there's still f- scenes
0: in German, isn't it? Where, he's, where he has the uh I thought the, the I thought the
1: shot of the institution came before the... It, well, before, had, the, oh, first, no. the
0: first shot of the film is, is Ombre sitting in an office holding up this licence plate. Mm. And he's been given instructions.
1: Oh, maybe I had got them turned on earlier. I might um, just be getting confused about what scene comes in what order, then. Um.
0: Yes, the, uh, the principal threatens to call the police, but they've already cut the telephone line. Yeah. So he's just isolated in his office, and Pepe, tied to the chair, is just laughing at him. Yes, constantly. Apparently, um, it, it, it differs uh, depending on which source I've read, depending on which uh, actor it is, but Herzog would just be in the habit of uh, telling the actor not to laugh, don't you dare laugh. And then on the take, he would just pull faces. Right. But, uh, the way he would get the actor playing Ombre to laugh, apparently, was he, before the take, he would just run up to him and tickle him. <clears throat> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and just tickle him and tickle him and tickle him. Right, action. <laughs> Ombre laughs all the way through the film. Yes. He's having a whale of a time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he has the best laugh I have ever heard. It's fantastically infectious. I'm left uh, but, but the other thing he does is he
1: repeats things that other people have said. I'm left wondering if Mike Judge has seen this room because he reminded me of like Beavis <laughs> because he'd do that thing and, go, yeah, yeah, you know, and then he'd say and then it yeah yeah <laughs> and, and it was like watching Beavis and Butthead it was
0: yeah yeah schönes Gesicht schönes Gesicht <laughs> yeah my, one of my favourite images of the film is where they're look, all looking at the pornography oh god yes and he's and he, there's a picture just leaning against the wall and mm. he keeps on sort of sneaking looks at it going yeah lovely face lovely That's face it. and we never see it and that was a deliberate Hmm. Uh, idea by himself. We never actually see it, and we cut to him later. And he's got—he's sitting against the wall with the picture propped up on his ankles, so you yes. can just see his hands holding the frame and his feet sticking out of the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> and this, this, this cartoonish picture. Yeah, he's he's in, he's incredibly charming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but also slightly slightly sinister as well, because he does just keep laughing. And it, yes, it's infectious, but there are times when it just seems to turn a bit creepy.
0: It, it seems like it's madness. Yeah.
1: Well, the, the, yes, I suppose that's true.
0: The thing is, a lot of my notes are just describing things that happen, but that's kind of redundant, really, because what happens is generally quite crazy. Yeah.
1: What happens um, is things. Yeah.
0: They um, they decide to destroy the principal's palm tree. Yes.
1: And again, I, I don't know this was before I'd kind of decided it was a metaphor for a South American revolution. But in retrospect, what that reminds you of is, is the scenes of the statues of Saddam Hussein being toppled and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very much a symbol of power. Mm. And they had to import the palm tree specially, because there aren't any. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, the, the film was actually shot on Lanzarote. Yeah. Um, and Herzog chose it because it was a volcanic island, and a 100 or so years earlier, there'd been a, there'd been a volcanic eruption which had completely smothered almost the whole of the island. And as a result, there was incre- almost no vegetation. Mm. Just this empty, blasted, moon-like yeah. landscape. Yeah, it looks astonishing. I liked your idea that yeah, this is the remains of Munich. <laughs> the idea that it's some kind of post-apocalyptic environment. No, I... Or, I, I or, or were you just having a little I was just mode? being stupid. Oh, OK.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I was... But, you know... Um... But who knows? I mean, that's that's the thing is that you gradually you gradually realise that everything that you're set up to believe isn't true anyway, because you start to think, you know the guy turns out to be as crazy as the rest of them, and I, I, spoilers for the end of the film. But at the end of the film, he just runs out and starts shouting at a tree.
0: Yeah, he's yelling at the tree to put his arm down.
1: And you suddenly realise that oh, he's not. One of the instructors. He's one of the inmates, or
0: he is one of the instructors. I think, but it's the idea that the, the people in power.
1: Yes, are just, are just as crazy. Are just as crazy. As, yeah,
0: and he's still you know, demanding fealty, demanding obedience, by telling this tree to put his arm down. I can hold my arm up yeah. just as long as you my arm. Oh, it feels so light. I can hold my arm up just as long as you can. Put your arm down. Put your arm down, and we just leave him there.
1: Yeah, arguing with a tree. And that's that's that's. That's the last you see of him, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, and I suppose again, if you if you go back to the the, the country revolution, yes, it's the, this is the guy that's now out of power and has no and is just one of the people, and being one of the people just means being crazy. It's just, again, it just, it's that un- constant undermining of, just as you think you've got to grips with whatever the hell it is that Werner Herzog is showing you, he pulls the rug out from underneath you again.
0: Well, there is, there is the central idea of it being an analogy for mm. revolution, but he's throwing in all these other bits yeah. and bobs here and there, like all the stuff with the chickens. Yes. Um... All the the uh, the scenes with the blind inmates. Yes, Which, who are being tormented by the, the, the sighted ones. Yeah, just seemingly out of mal—well, not malice,
1: but no, they, I think it sort of, does—it does cross the line into maliciousness because they they actively enjoy to- torturing them. Because at one point they catch one of them because he's dropped his stick or something, don't they? And they take him around, the, and they're gonna—I forget what they're gonna—they say they're gonna do to him. To him, but and again, I, I don't know. This is obviously just part of the same grim spectacle that, that that happens every single day in whatever this place is.
0: Well, since well now that there's the the discipline has been released, mm. so that they're allowed to do whatever they want. Everything that had been so pent up is now being allowed to escape.
1: Yes, yeah. Because there's a there's a there's a sequence, isn't there, where. The two blind inmates are playing some, and it takes a while to work out what's going on. But they're throwing a ball from one side to the other, and they're tapping glass bottles with sticks. And you gradually realise that that they they've worked out the rules of some complicated game between them, that and they're they're playing it. And the other inmates are kind of playing almost like grandmother's footsteps, and they're creeping around in the middle of this game. And and, well, and they end up pinching the ball. They don't do they? pinch the ball in the end. Yeah. But before that, they're doing this elaborate kind of dodging the ball routine and then freezing so that they don't hear them. Mm. Yeah.
0: Um, Some of them decide that Ombre should get married. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so we have have the long sequence of Ombre and uh, one of the female inmates being shut in a bedroom. And Ombre can't climb onto the bed because he's too small. And I thought... I
1: wasn't sure at first whether this was... I mean, the film steers clear of the oh they're dwarfs, they can't reach anything, look how small they are, ha ha ha. It never never goes into that kind of territory. But that's kind of what I thought the scene with the bed was going to be at first. But actually that is that sense of this world that's just not designed for them. And the fact that yes, you know, he can't get onto this. This relatively simple thing of getting onto a bed that you just take for granted is not something that he can do at all. Hmm. Um, but guess they're meant to be married, and this is still when it's the part of the sort of the idea that that this is a this is an institution where the instructors have all gone off for the day or something, and they're meant to have been locked in one of the instructors' rooms or something, aren't they? Yeah, that's one. Is that when they find the pornographic magazine? Yeah, got, yeah,
0: yeah. He starts pulling magazines out from under the bed to. to to, stand, to climb on to, to help himself up, and they wind up oh, also pictures of lovely women, in. and that was something that Hertzel wanted to do—that to say, yes, these are you know, these are perfectly ordinary urges. They want to look at pictures mm. of, of beautiful people and that kind of thing because there's not meant to be any difference. No, they're just, they're they're perfectly healthy, normal human beings looking at pictures. of perfectly healthy, normal human beings. As uh, <laughs> as one of guys, oh, lovely tits, lovely tits. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes there's the pig mm. there, there's, a, there's a pig in the institute and it has a lot of piglets and then the pig dies somehow
1: and well, the what, two of them claim they killed it or something don't they yes but they won't say how they did it
0: no the pig uh, really was dead yeah um, uh, but uh, it appears to be of natural causes, so that was left into the movie when it was eventually released in the UK mm. because there's no indication of animal cruelty no um, but it's, it's a bit, and then we have the, the insect wedding party as well. Again, and this is all these kind of nightmarish subconscious ideas bubbling up from Herzog's subconscious. Mm. How long do you think he, well, how long did he claim? Because what he claims is not necessarily mm. true, even though it often is. How long do you think it took him to write the script? So it's either going to be a really long time or a really short time. Yeah, which
1: is... That's pretty much what I was going to say. And and I, the only thing that stopped me saying it was realising that's the most banal observation. But but it, it does kind of feel... He's either going to lie and go, I wrote it in 45 minutes or something like that. Or he's going to go, I was working on it for years and it was never... You know. I would have been inclined to believe it's, it's the kind of script, actually, that feels like it, it should have been worked on for a long time because I could... If for some reason somebody approached me and asked me to write a film about a, 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 an institute for dwarfs that was a metaphor for the fall of a government, I would almost be inclined to start with writing a script that was just about the fall of a government and then go and then do another part in it and go, OK, well, how can I now work backward? So that with every redrafting of the script, you're working further away from the idea of the the fall of a country and more towards... The idea of it being set in this institute, so that you you never you never lose that initial thread that, that starts it, but at the same time it gradually gets more and more removed from it because that that was what I was going back to when you were saying about the insect wedding party it is a collection of uh, it's a collection of weird scenes, the scene with the pig, the scene with the van, the scene with the blind. Inmates. the same with the insect wedding party, but there's always this logical thread that kind of connects the metaphor together. So I'm going to lean towards more than it took him a ludicrously long period of time to write.
0: Four days. Okay. <laughs> a lot of it was things bubbling up from his no. subconscious. A lot of it was things that were inspired by his real life and his real experiences. Okay. The van, the idea that they, they, have, they have this van there, And they set it going, Mm. and they put the steering wheel on hard lock so it's just going round and round in circles with no one at the wheel. Yeah. And they're climbing on top of it and riding around and having a great time. That's from Herzog's own life. Okay. Because one of the other jobs he had to make a bit of quick cash was he would work as a parking attendant at at Oktoberfest in Munich. Right. And it would often be the case that people would come back to their cars to go home, and they were so (laughs) shit-faced... That Not only was it totally without question that they couldn't drive, they weren't capable of driving. Wow. So, Herzog would just throw them in a taxi, Hmm. taking their keys, and then he'd start up their cars and just put the steering wheel on full lock and just let it go round and round and round in circles for hours until they ran out of petrol. Right. And apparently he was in the habit of doing this, and the police kept being called. Really? (laughs) Because that's what he did for amusement. Yeah. Yeah, I (laughs) mean... Would you expect any less? (laughs) No,
1: not really. I think the only way you could have made it would have been if it somehow worked in a flock of chickens there or something. Um, Yeah, and the... But as you say, the insect wedding party, I don't know. I can see actually that being... That's the kind of thing that a a mad
0: great aunt would do. It was something... They had to have them made. um, All the clothes for 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 the insects. Apparently they had great difficulty getting a top hat that was small enough Um, and it was just this idea that he'd had from somewhere or something he'd seen somewhere "Oh, oh that's a great idea
1: but it is that kind of thing that you sort of see those horrible examples of Victorian taxidermy where it's Kittens, and they've all been dressed up as a hunting party or something. Oh,
2: kittens! That's well, that's
1: probably a bad example. That's probably a terrible. That's probably a terrible example. But you know that weird thing of posed <laughs> stuffed animals. Um, yes. Um, and so I can ima- i I can see at some point that he might have seen. Uh, it's the kind of thing the Victorians would have been all over. They'd have loved it. I'm sure if you go to the V&A, they've probably got something like that lurking in a corner, and they show it to bad children or something. <laughs>
0: Stop touching all the things or we'll turn you into this. Yeah. I, just, they, they, I think one of them says at one point, oh, I'm a poor beetle like that. He'd sure like to go to heaven. Yeah. Um, the principal tries to signal for help, but no one's paying any attention. Mm. And he's waiting for the staff to come back.
1: And um, that's the th- again, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that he's waiting. He's saying, oh, they must be back soon. And I think you gradually realise that then uh, either there
0: never was a staff, or they're not coming. Or they're back. not coming
1: back. Or something else. Yeah. I...
0: Well, if we, looking at the analogy of the revolution.
1: Yeah, it's the army. Or it's
0: something. well, it's like all the uh, all the other members of the government. They've all fled. Yes. Yeah. They've all hightailed it for the border, mm. leaving muggins behind.
1: Yes. To stand on the balcony and shout at
0: the. Hey, crowds. you! 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 You behave! Mm. The police are going to be here any minute. They told me. Yeah. They just said so. They said they yeah just... Because yeah, he's, cause he's pretending to make a phone yeah. call after the lines have been cut. Mm. And then he's saying, "Well, oh, I've called the police. Yeah. And <laughs> at one point someone shouts up at them, oh, we're going to tear your arse apart. Yes. I thought, yeah. That's not a movie I want to see. <laughs>
1: no, definitely not.
0: Um, there's a line that I liked, which is, um, when we're good, no one cares. Yes. And when we're bad, no one forgets. Yeah. I thought that, yeah, that's quite telling that's quite a political line i think
1: i think so but again that that could that that's the kind of line that that could play into if you want to view it as literally just it's an institution it's been dumped miles out of town in this weird uh you know in this weird desolate landscape because nobody wants to live near this weird institution um or yes or it's a metaphor or something
0: (laughs) but uh, chaos starts to take over there riding around on the the back of the, uh, the van, they slam the top all in the in the back doors. So they're riding around on that.
2: There's
0: mm. a food fight, um, and it
1: gradually gets more violent. Uh, not violent's not quite the right word. More aggressive, I guess, because then they they've, they discover fire. But yeah, you know, then they're setting yeah. fire to everything. They,
0: and... they, they, they flower pots that they start yeah. smashing. They smash all the crockery. Um, we have and then. The, the cockfighting. Mm, oh
1: yeah, that's a nasty little...
0: I mean, those, the, the 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 roosters were actually lo, found locally. Mm. They were they're already trained as as fighting fighting roosters. But again, the BBFC had a problem with that. Yeah. When the film was eventually released in 1991 in the UK, that and the monkey crucifixion were both cut for legal reasons.
1: Was it was it just that? there would have be been no interest in releasing it before 1991 commercially, or was it just that it, it took that long for the arguments over the...
0: I think that they could easily have released it earlier. I mean, there's no yeah. reason why it would have taken 20 years to resolve. Yeah. Herzog doesn't seem to be too concerned about his films being censored. Mm. Uh, I mean, in, ca- in cases like this, there's really no way around it, because it's, no. it's not a matter of, oh, we're not sure if this was the line. no. Yeah. The animal looks distressed. The animals are being injured. Yeah. That's a legal issue. It's not a matter of grey areas. Yeah. And I... I understand entirely why they've done that. Mm. Um I think it's just that there was you know, it's a black and white German film about dwarves and it's all crazy and everything. Yeah. How well is this gonna play in the Odeon? Yeah. square?
1: No, that's right. And I've got to say that I I got less and less comfortable with the treatment of animals on screen uh, as the film went on, I'm kind of relieved to find that that Werner Herzog says that you know, or at least now says that he was, you know, you took took care to make sure that the animals weren't distressed or weren't overly distressed no, at the time. He says
0: that about the monkey. Yeah, he well, that's right.
1: he doesn't, doesn't. He doesn't care about the chickens. You can't. Well, I was going to say, yes. See, I, I, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised to discover that he flattened the chicken himself. <laughs> And the roosters, again, they're fighting with... The, you know, that's, that's obviously that's going to be distressing for the animals to film, to, 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 to do anyway. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised it was... I'm not surprised it was cut out from the UK version. Mm. And even some of the shots of... When they start, they start using the chickens as, I don't know, they projectors... They start as weapons, yeah. And they start heaving them around. I was not comfortable with the way that the chickens were being held... Or were being thrown around, and I certainly I can't I can't be a part of Werner Herzog to help them they're only chickens, philosophy. Um,
0: well, in ter- well, I don't think the chickens were really hurt by that, mm. and I think his logic with the the fighting roosters is they're going to fight, gonna anyway fight yeah. and at least one of them is going to come to a nasty mm. end, and if we're filming it, then we're just filming it but it's staged specifically for the scene yeah. and that crosses the line. Yes. In Apocalypse Now there's a scene where oh, I think it's a water buffalo is, is slaughtered. That was allowed because that was going to happen anyway they just happened to be filming mm. it. So it's effectively documentary footage of a separate event Yeah, and that and they're able to prove that sufficiently and so that's okay. If it was staged for the movie that would have been a huge red line through that yeah yeah
1: well it's the abyss as well isn't Mm. it that's always in the UK version got a sequence cut
0: yes because they nearly drowned a rat yeah that
1: was it Uh,
0: yeah and again that's Mm. that's an actual rat drowning because James Cameron doesn't care no Um, I mean he'll do the same to his actors so what what chance does the rat have
1: no we've yeah we've established that haven't we there's
0: a reason why Ed Harris lamped him during the making of that film don't mess with Ed Harris no you look a bit like Ed Harris. Okay, oh,
1: thank you very much. I might go on a widespread fraud campaign. On this, <laughs> I? I'm, I'm Ed Harris, give me free stuff.
0: Well, the guy who impersonated Stanley Kubrick looked absolutely <laughs> nothing like it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're starting to get towards the end as everything's getting... Everything's starting to get crazy. They, they start making threats of violence against mm. the, um, the principal. They eventually start trying to burn the building down. They set fire to the flowers and the van winds up going down a... An, an amazing hole in the ground. Um, yeah, it's a volcanic vent. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it just goes straight down the hole and it goes down a really, really long way. Mm. <laughs> and um, apparently it was eventually removed years <laughs> later. Was I don't think I've
1: been so uncomfortable watching that sequence with the van I was convinced it was going to kill somebody I mean apart from the fact that it looked incredibly dangerous anyway because mm. they're running around in front of but I I think I just expected at some point that the van would casually run somebody over and that then you'd have to watch all these sequences of distressed dwarves or something like which at least I suppose if nothing else at least proves I've apparently got a more morbid imagination than Werner Herzog
0: oh someone was run over oh god really yeah um, one, of the, one of the main actors. Oh, is this the film where Herzog jumped into a cactus? Well, firstly, oh. one of the actors was run over.
1: Yeah.
0: Weirdly, he was absolutely fine. He got up uninjured. And then when they were setting fire to the flowers, he got set on fire as well. Oh, God. And Herzog leapt into action and smothered the flames. And he was burned, but not seriously. And Herzog announced to the company that if we get through the rest of the film and no one else is injured, I will jump in the big patch of cactuses. So filming was completed, and no one else was injured. And Herzog, who has never not followed through on a bet, (laughs) jumped in the patch of cactuses. And he said that getting out was a lot harder than getting in. (laughs) We are completely. And he was still apparently pulling spines out over a decade later, Mm. and quite a few are still embedded quite deeply. There was another occasion where he bet uh, Errol Morris, the documentarian, that he would not be able to finish his first film. And the forfeit he decided on was that he would eat one of his own shoes. (laughs) Morris finished the film, and at the premiere, Herzog cooked and ate his own shoe. He didn't eat the rubber sole, though, because he said it's like, you don't eat the bones. No, exactly. Well, of course, no, you've got to have some common sense in this. He boiled it with onions and garlic and ate it on stage. And turned that into another food. (laughs) Well, of course. Um, yeah, he wasn't making a film that year. You know, he, he's quite happy to just churn them out. Mm. But at uh, this point, the uh, the principal sees that kind of the game's up, and he flees.
1: Yeah, he's. Yes, I think that's that's basically. He, he's talking about the fact that he's going to torture. It's Pepe he's got tied up, isn't it? Yeah. He? he keeps talking about the fact that he's going to do terrible things to Pepe, and then he starts going about how he needs loads of space to do all the terrible things he's going to So he starts Platz. running.
2: Platz! Ich brauche Platz!
1: <laughs> and he's dragging, he's pulling all the stuff out of his room. And then, yes, and then he just go, runs out, and as we've established, he starts shouting at a
0: tree. Mm. While well, back in the, uh, in the Institute, it's just left with a camel that has suddenly appeared. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, and uh, Ombre really laughs. enjoys the camel's company and yeah. just laughs and laughs and laughs for two and a half minutes, solidly laughing. And he was, he was instructed by Herzog, just laugh as though it's, you're laughing yourself to death. And the idea was that at the end he would just keel over to just dead. He would have laughed himself. Oh, right. he would have laughed all the soul out of his body but he just just laughs continuously <laughs> and then the film stops and then the film just there's a, a quick fade to black and that's it no credits no yeah. the end caption nothing and you actually thought there was something wrong with your copy I thought
1: my computer crashed back to the desktop initially because I, I yeah I'd, because films don't just stop that
0: would be crazy no. Well, obviously, Werner Herzog does things differently Mm. because a number of his films do that. They just fade out at the end with no credits or anything. Yeah. The whole story is left completely unresolved. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, I suppose... We just get this little insight into this world Mm. of this this world in flux as something is changing. We don't know what from or what to, but there's this outburst of of manic energy as people run around in an environment that is not their own, or that is not suited for them.
1: Yeah. I don't know, I suppose they go to bed, and they wake
0: up in the morning and they do it all again. Do you think this film was maybe an influence on David Lynch? I wouldn't be surprised. It screened in the US in, I think, 71 or so, Right. when Lynch was already making his first films. He started as an artist and a painter, yeah. but he was moving into film as an alternative medium. And the black and white, the dwarves, yes. let's be honest. Um, but the, the dream logic, yeah. the the the, sub, the subconscious imagery, uh, the... and the, the, the strange nightmarish tone, it does feel Lynchian. It feels very like proto-Lynchian.
1: It's certainly, I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about David Lynch, um... You could see it being an influence, absolutely. I think you can in the same way that Crispin Glover has said that this is an influence on his some of his kind of more sort of absurdist films and things. Yeah, I, I can imagine that you might sit there and watch a film like that and you wouldn't necessarily think dwarfs. That's what my <laughs> film is <laughs> But you would you might feel in some way that it's like turned a key or that just that thing of
0: if you're used to seeing films that are conventional... Yes. Even, you know, we've talked about like the whole shift in New Hollywood in 1967. Mm. The films were still conventional in many ways. Yeah. I mean, what's something like In the Heat of the Night. That's quite a normal film. Mm. But it's dealing with subject matter that would, was just previously ignored and glossed over. Yeah. Easy Rider, that looks like a film. Mm. This doesn't look like anything no. that anyone might have seen in mainstream cinema to this point so to have this, oh you've got to see this, this German film that's come out it's all about dwarves in a, like an asylum or something, you've got to see it's, it's totally crazy, it's you've never seen anything like it David, well I don't know that sounds kind of interesting, oh maybe have another cup of coffee <laughs> um, he said drinking actually from a mug of coffee um, I can imagine it, even if it's not direct elements of saying huh maybe maybe i don't have to worry about my feature film being totally coherent and uh, rational i can just do things by instinct Mm. and it will it will just fit it will just sort of
1: go because that's like i say, i think that's the main the main achievement i felt that this film had was that it feels mm. like
0: a coherent
1: whole. Uh, yes, you you can't necessarily. And I I just feel that that this podcast has just been forty five minutes of me dancing around the fact I
0: don't know what that whole is, but it's co- <laughs> there's a there's there's a thing there. It's been this was a film that was made on purpose. Yes, nothing that I mean, to like Stanley Kubrick in there. everything that everything in his movies is there deliberately. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of mm. thrown in and stuff he saw, like the fighting chickens, obviously it yeah. was something that he saw in the environment. But it forms a, co- a a solid, coherent world. Yeah, and it's not even that sense you get with
1: some something like 1941 where John Belushi suddenly does something wacky on set.
0: And it's like, yeah, great, let's keep that in, do it again. Yeah, just throw it in and yeah. do do whatever you want. Or to, uh, to bring in a subject that... Uh, I I have discussed to death and I mean I've discussed because I've just lectured people about it, the Ghostbusters remake Hmm. have you seen it? Yes I have. Did you think that there was too much improv in that? Yes, I mean the trouble is I saw it after
1: I'd seen um, I think it was Red Letter Media did quite a good deconstruction of why they didn't think that worked and they talked about the too much improv and the fact that, and the example that they gave was the sequence in the original film where there's a knock on the door, the receptionist opens it, goes dropping off or picking up, the cock goes pick, uh, dropping off, and they bring in uh, Rick Moranis. Yeah. In the remake, there would have been a knock on the door and the receptionist would have gone, Oh, I'm coming, I'm coming. Oh, no, I've tripped over something. Comedy fall. And then stand up. Oh, my, now I've hurt my knee. I'm going to have to stand. Oh, my knee's so sore. Oh, I'm, just, I'm kind of still coming. but you know, mm-hmm. And that same sequence that was just a perfect little scene, yeah. suddenly becomes this bloated three-minute mess. And so I saw... How do so, we get onto this? I don't know. I think this is I think what that, Werner Herford... Because... Sorry, what I was leading back around to was that I saw Ghostbusters, the remake, after... I'd seen the, kind of the deconstruction of what was wrong with it, so I was sort of already aware of its flaws.
0: Yeah. But yes, you're, you, know, you were going to talk about the improvisation. There's too much of it, in this, and well, it's not okay. disciplined. Um, there's no sort of central thesis holding it all together. Mm. Herzog is a director who works by discipline. Yeah. He has a central idea. He's uh, a central feeling he's reaching for. The phrase that he always loves coming back to is ecstatic truth. Okay. He does this a lot in his documentaries where he will play fast and loose with the facts in order to reveal the underlying truth Mm. of everything. So there is a a central thesis and a central direction he's heading for. And that requires discipline. You have to cut away all the things that aren't relevant. You have to cut away Mm. all the the fat to get the, the delicious lean chicken meat. And the Ghostbusters remake didn't do that because no. there's too much improv. Yeah. You, you cut that away. Some improv is good. That's why it's improv. You can do the same things over and over again. Yes. Think, ah, that, Take 15, that was really good. Let's develop that. Mm. But that's what rehearsals are for.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: I've seen footage from the making the first Anchorman movie. They did so much rehearsal on that Ooh. because they were just workshopping gags, workshopping well. scenes, coming up with new material. And so then when they eventually shot the movie, they still shot like four hours worth of material. Mm. But they're able to hone it down and hone it down and hone it down, and they've got a really tight ninety minutes. The same with Spinal Tap; it's a really yeah. tight hour and twenty.
1: Yeah, and that's it. And and that's what what what. And I wish I could think of a good example. Of a bad art house film, but I think everybody kind of knows in their head that vague idealized example of there'll be a shot of an eye, and then there'll be a shot of. Uh, you know, grass blowing in the wind, or something. And it'll, you'll just be sitting there going, "Don't you be talking smack about Terence Malick? Oh. <laughs> Don't you okay. dare be talking smack oh, about Terence Malick."
0: Okay. I saw the Tree of Life recently for the first time, and I thought it was great. Right. <laughs> and it's exactly like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a, it's it's about a boy growing up in the fifties in Texas with a, a kind of an earth mothery mother and a, a loving but disciplinarian father who wants his son to do well in the world because you know things are tough and you know mm. you've got to be you've got to fight for yourself. And then occasionally it'll cut back to the dinosaurs <laughs> and the creation of the universe. I think, yeah, this is exactly what people complain about when they watch Arthouse movies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. Yeah. Um but Herzog always has a central yeah. idea. Lynch always has a central idea. He's just not going to tell you what it is. Mm. You have to figure it out. No. You have it's... to dig through all the layers of subconscious imagery and sounds and industrial noise and weird looking hairstyles. Herzog is always reaching for this this great human truth mm. and here it's about the way revolutions happen and eventually just sort of collapse yeah. or put into chaos because there's there's nothing shaping it. Mm. There's no one in charge of what's going on. There's no leader of now the dwarves. There's, there's no one saying, "Hey, we should fight back against these things. We can, we can run this place ourselves, and yeah. we'll do it really well." No, they're just fucking around. Yeah. And a lot of people were upset with Herzog because they thought that he was making a film about the, the futility of revolution. I think. And that's and that's not his point. He's saying no. It starts off well. Yeah. But there's no direction. Yeah. You actually have to have a point. You have to have to, it, It's not as simple as. What are you rebelling against? What do you got? Mm. No, it has to be something specific. Yeah. So would you watch another Herzog movie? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only about 70 of them because he's done opera, he's done features, he's done documentary features, he's done shorts. Um, he's done everything you can think of. I think I, I mentioned this to you
1: before we started recording and I'm going to go on the record with this now that love film used to send me dvds at random which occasionally meant that you got the world's most eclectic selections and one evening i was faced with the choice between agriero wrath of god or despicable me too and i'm going to go back and, and say i took the coward's way out and watched despicable me too but judas <laughs> i'm now banned from the podcast forever.
0: <laughs> you will not be invited back no and um that's uh, the funny thing is that gary is actually really funny in places yeah i had a, a a slight, um, maybe an error of judgement. I uh, showed it to my book group when we occasionally had film nights. Uh, the first time we had a film night, I showed them uh, Fahrenheit 451. Okay. Which was a bit of a gamble because it's my favourite film. Mm. And Clue. Okay. And Clue was the dessert. Yeah. You get, you get through the, mm. as Spielberg put it, the bitter herbs of the main meal. And then you get the sweet dessert. And they really enjoyed them. I thought, oh, great. Because they're both great films. I thought, right. Yeah, ambitious next time I'm going to show them Aguirre Wrath of God <laughs> they hated it <laughs> Right. I mean it's the the ending of it and,
1: and I don't particularly worry about having the film spoiled or anything because I don't think Phonahut's quite makes films like that but the ending of the film crops up on the documentary about Klaus Kinski um, and it's a shot of him going down a raft on a river with monkeys yeah he loves monkeys and it's the eeriest image I've ever seen I think it's partly again because Klaus is like the world's most frightening man. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just on this raft shouting. I think he might be shouting at the monkeys, or at least he's kind of moving around the raft and forcing them to sort of flee from him. He's,
0: he's delivering a monologue yeah. to oh, someone yes, is, about how he? he's going to found a, a, a dynasty that will conquer yeah. the whole of America. He's going to marry his daughter and to found a pure bloodline, ignoring the fact that every other character in the movie... Apart from him and the monkeys, is now dead. Yeah, um, because he's just left alone ranting and raving and screaming. So I, I do partly
1: regret taking the easy option with the minions, and yes, I think that's definitely one I'll have to follow on from.
0: I think you should have uh, adopted the same system, which is you get through the the, the mm. stodgy main meal, the the, the nourishing but uh, difficult starter. And then you get the sweet dessert of (laughs) Agiri Wrath of God. (laughs) And you watch them in that order. Mm. Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts with nearly 50 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. Podnos is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off donation or a regular contribution to help us with our running costs. We're also on Twitter at Cinema underscore Limbo and in person at J underscore J underscore Phillips with two L's. However, until next time... You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. of this uh, Crocodile Dundee thing that's just suddenly come up I don't
1: apparently they're making a sequel or
0: something no they're not oh ok um, it was—it turned out to be a long lead up to a I think, minute long commercial advertising to Australian tourism right but they brought in so many big Australian stars that don't feature like Hugh Jackman as the Prime mm. Minister of Australia which I thought well of course it is yeah But he's not actually in the finished commercial. Oh, okay. And the the commercial is... um, It's Danny McBride. He's uh, Mick Dundee's long-lost son. He arrives in um, Australia to be met by Walter Riley's son, who's played by Chris Hemsworth. And they say, oh, come and look around Australia. It's got beautiful beaches and beautiful restaurants. And and then McBride interrupts and says, is this a commercial for Australian tourism? Yeah! (laughs) And at the back of the shot, you see um, Paul Hogan... Oh, okay. In the, in the get up. He's about 80 now. Mm. Um, and I thought, this is a really weird campaign because it looks as though you're trying to drum up support for the prospect of a new Crocodile Dundee yeah. movie, but also having a cake and eating it by at the same time being a commercial for Australian tourism and how great Australia is to visit. Mm. And I've no doubt that it is, apart from all the horrible, monstrous creatures there. Yes. My mother is terrified of going to Australia. I think she's convinced it's like Mordor. Yes, yeah. Well, I do. I think there is this vague
1: sense that if you go there, you just, it's nothing but spiders leaping at you and you kind of need a tennis racket to yeah. get rid of them. Um I don't know. I, I, I think more than anything, the, the length of the plane flight puts me off, to be honest.
0: I don't like the idea of being on a plane for 24 hours. No.
1: I think I would possibly go inside.
0: They should dig a tunnel.
1: Yeah, yeah, that
0: would be quicker. See, they did. That's in the remake of Total Recall. There's a tunnel between, them <laughs> um, I think it's, Australia and England for no reason. Because, there's a nice it's a terrible film.
1: There's a nice joke in one of the Thursday Next books where there's also a tunnel to Australia. And the idea is that because the tunnel goes through the center of the earth, you literally you just get pushed off at the top, you fall through to the bottom, and by the time you get to the other side your momentum down has been cancelled out so you just kind of arrive gently.
0: <laughs> That's scientifically correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um have you seen Crocodile Dundee three?
1: No. Where do they go this time?
0: It's Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Is it? I thought yes. No, oh no! Of course, number one is they go to New York. Yes. Number yeah. one is they go back. Number two is they go back to the outback. That's it. With, yeah.
1: With all the drug. No, rules. I was just confused because I thought number one was them going to Los Angeles anyway. But yeah, I, no, I haven't seen it. It's not very good. <laughs> I'm. Very, I think by that point the the the. the Australian film industry boom had failed at that point because you know, you'd had Crocodile Dundee, you'd had the brief interest in Yahoo Serious. <laughs> I think that boat had sailed. Ah, the was... <laughs> Episcopo of the Southern Hemisphere. That's it. I think that boat had sailed, hadn't it?
0: Well, we had films like Japanese Story, mm, which yeah. I think came out the same year as Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, really? Um But I, I think it was an American picture. I mean, it was partly shot on Australia. Walkabout Creek has become a bit more developed. Um, Mick and um, what's her name again? Linda Kozlowski is the name I of the actress. N- no idea. I haven't seen Crocodile Dundee since 1986 or whenever it was that it came out. Did you know that it is the highest, sorry, the most watched film ever broadcast on the BBC? I can't say I did, but I'm not surprised. It was I think Christmas Day film on I think 1989. Hmm.
1: It was a really big deal at the time. Couldn't tell you why, but it was a big enough deal that, that when we were taken to the video shop and said, OK, here you go, what video do you want to watch? We picked Crocodile Dundee.
0: It's a really good film. I think it was Oscar-nominated for its script. OK. It's just a really charming, clever, funny hmm. story that's kind of just sort of ambles and doesn't really go anywhere, but it's just charming and engaging. Yeah, And the sequel is about drug dealers.
1: Well, of course, because the sequel... Well, it was the 80s, lots of people were taking drugs, and you have to have something exciting in them.
0: It does follow a similar trajectory to the Johnny English films, (laughs) um, where the first one is a very sort of loose comedy with with these certain elements, but the second is much more of a genre picture Mm. with a lot of comedy in it. So I think from that we can judge that the third Johnny English film will be very much like the third Crocodile Dundee film. Makes sense. Which is that it came out a decade too late and was terrible. There was actually a Paul Hogan um, biopic miniseries last year.
1: God, really?
0: Yes, in Australia.
1: Oh, in Australia? Because, because
0: I mean, he's a, he's a huge star. Well, yeah. Um,
1: if you watch the closing footage of the Sydney Olympics, he's on stage with Men and Work while they're singing Land Down Under. It's possibly the most Australian <laughs> thing you can imagine.
0: That's rather charming. Well, they're they're rightfully proud of their hmm. very successful countrymen. Um, it's interesting, actually. I also found out that Wake in Fright's been remade as a mini series in Australia, and apparently it's absolutely awful. Oh, They've right. completely ignored all the things that made the original work, like uh, Donald Pleasance's character apparently raping the lead. Right. <laughs> um, it's it's all about sort of manliness. Okay. And, oh, And there is a, a, there's a slightly homoerotic subtext to the original movie. Yeah. And that's sort of avoided.
1: Is this one you've discussed on Cinema Limbo
0: before? Yeah, it was. I it, thought it, so, yeah. It was the film that came out in 1970 and then vanished. And, just... and then was re-released a couple of years ago. And I counted it as a new film because I hadn't had the chance to see it at any point in my life. I forget who you talked about with it,
1: but they weren't. I got the impression they didn't engage it, with the film particularly well. It
0: was you. Well, uh, wake and Fight? Yeah, I didn't do it as a, an episode, so oh, right. I just talked about it generally. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was you. Okay, maybe.
1: I, that's really bizarre. I'm, I'm sure maybe I've listened to a, some, a podcast of somebody else discussing it then.
0: Well, it's become, after it's been rediscovered, it's now been acclaimed as kind of a, right. a lost masterpiece of uh, the new Australian way of, of filmmaking which is then just starting to mm. gain momentum. Peter Weir was the big uh, proponent of it. But, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, any further Crocodile Dundee adventures. Who wouldn't, please? Yeah, I think uh, Chris Hemsworth would be a good choice. The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com.